dismissed. I, I neglected to comment that they were welcome to head for uh, Children's Church, but it looks like most of them have headed that way. And so we are going to turn our attention to Mark chapter 4. We've been working our way through uh, the Gospel of Mark, <clears throat> and um, we've been seeing a lot of different things that goes on. What is one of the main things that Jesus does over and over and over again? What, what have we seen him do a bunch of? Anybody remember? To teach. Okay. And what else? To go alone in prayer. He did that. He was teaching. He was healing. And he was casting out demons, right? Those are, those are some of the main things that he was doing. But the biggest one is the first one that was mentioned is the fact that he was teaching. Over and over and over again, we see that phrase, that word. And, and as we get into this section, we're going to say, we're, we're going to see, and he was saying. It's going to come up four times throughout this one. Um, now, during the, the week, one person gave me a call and asked, because in the, uh, in the handout, in the pre-study guide, um, their translation said it a little bit differently. And so they were like, what, what's, why, why are you asking about these sayings? Well, Four times it says, and he was saying. And the idea is that this was a continuous, constant thing. Over and over and over again, we see Jesus teaching. That's what he's doing. That's what he's about. He's, he's teaching. He's preaching. He's proclaiming a message. Who remembers what that message is? We saw it way back in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. And it is an open book exam. You're welcome to look it up. What, what was his message? What was his primary thing? Okay. Repent and believe the gospel. There was something else connected with that as well. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. That was what he's focused on. That's what he's been teaching. And so as we come to this section, we see that Jesus continues to teach. It's not that he has, has suddenly changed what he's doing. He initially started by talking to the religious leaders, and, and that was his focus. He was trying to interact with them, trying to teach them, trying to pro proclaim to him what was going on. How did they respond to that? Not well. Not well at all. And in fact, in, in Mark, we went through and we saw five different interactions in which uh, Jesus was interacting with the religious leaders, and it started off, they were asking a, a good, reasonable question, and by the end of those five interactions, they wanted to kill him because they had completely rejected him. And, and in rejecting him, they rejected the message that he was bringing. Well, that didn't stop Jesus. That didn't say, oh, they, they aren't listening, so I'm done. He then merely turned his attention and continued to teach to the crowds. And he has gathered some disciples, uh, and it named off 12 of them who are following him more closely, constantly, continuously. Named those, but there's crowds that are following and that he's teaching, that he's interacting with. And so what, where we're going right now in chapter 4 is he is teaching the crowds. And then we saw last week specifically he's explaining certain things to his disciples. If we go back to chapter 4, verse 1, it says, he began to teach again by the sea, and such a very great multitude gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down, and the whole multitude was by the sea on the land, and he was teaching them many things in parables 
and was saying to them in his teaching. And then it went on and, and we looked at one of those parables last week. Well, we're going to look at, uh, you'll notice it says three more parables, and yet there's four sections. And so when I, when I was initially going through this one, I'm like, okay, how many of these are parables and how does that all fit together and how does it work? I can't always count real well. Um, there are four sections that we're going to be looking at, but there are a couple of different parables that he's going to present, and we're going we're to examine those. We looked at one last week. The reality is Jesus teaches in parables a lot. There are, in Matthew, I believe there are 30 different parables that are, are recorded. Matthew and Luke combined with, with Mark, there are over 30 times in which he uses parables, which who remembers what the definition of a parable is? Anybody? Okay, it's, it's two things side by side. That's, that's really what it, the word itself means. Generally speaking, it's, it's something that they're familiar with, paired with something that they're learning. And in general, when we look at Jesus' parables, it's something physical that they've experienced with and that they know, paired with a spiritual concept that he wants them to learn and understand. He does this in a variety of different ways. There's, there's going to be figures of speech. There's going to be analogies. There's going to be similes. All of those that he uses are the parables in order to teach these things. So we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 4, verse 21 through 34 specifically. And so I'm going to go ahead and read that to us uh, as we begin examining it. Starting off in verse 21. And he was saying to them, a lamp is not brought to be put under a peck measure, is it? Or under a bed? Is it not brought to be put on the lampstand? For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it should come to light. If any man has ears to hear, let him hear. And he was saying to them, Take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure it shall be measured to you, and more shall be given you beside. For whoever has, to him shall more be given. And whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. And he was saying, The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil, and goes to bed at night, and gets up by day. And the seed sprouts up and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. And when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, How shall we picture the kingdom of God? Or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed, which, when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants, and forms large branches, so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. And with many such parables, he was speaking the word to them as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. <clears throat> now, I've, I've mentioned repeatedly, um, but I, I might not have emphasized it in the past. That's why we took a little bit of time and, and refreshed our memory that this isn't just a one-off time in which he teaches but that's what he's constantly doing over and over and over again. It's a continuous thing. That that's what Jesus focuses on. He was constantly teaching, and he was using a wide variety of methods in order to do that. 
taking these things that they were familiar with and pairing them with what he wanted them to learn and to understand. Um, we're going to be looking at a couple of those here. I, I mentioned that there are four times when it says, and he was saying. Now, depending on your translation, it may be, and he said, or you know, something to that effect. He taught them. It, it may phrase it differently in English, but in all four of them, it uses the exact same phrase to express that, that he is saying these things over and over again. Um, Mark is not trying to record every single little parable that Jesus uses but he records several of them to help us recognize how he was teaching, what he was teaching, what his point was. Um, <clears throat> if you use a harmony of the Gospels and you compare a parable in one place with a parable in another place, there are times in which he'll use the same parable to teach different things, different ideas. And so that's why I, I think last week I mentioned that you know, there, there are different times that parables mean multiple things. I'm not trying to say that you get to pick whatever you want it to say, but that Jesus uses them in different ways. In fact, one of these that we're going to look at, this idea of measures, um, in some places refers to how you handle your finances and what you're doing. In other places, it's how you handle his word and what he gives to you. So paying attention to the specific context in which he uses that parable becomes very significant. Um, <clears throat> in this one, Jesus is going to use two analogies, and then he's going to use two similes. Now, an, an analogy is simply that he's going to um, give a picture of something and then ask a rhetorical question. Get them thinking about it. Get them trying to figure out what's going on. A simile, who, who knows what the definition of a simile is? Anybody? If, if you were, do, do what? I thought I heard one. Something that's the same. This is like that. And so you're going to see that come up quite a bit. Um, primarily, you're going to see it in the Psalms. You're going to see it in prophecy. If you were here for the, the study through Revelation on Wednesday nights, um, there are lots of times in which it says this was like that because he wasn't trying to give us the exact what it looked like as much as to give that comparison because like something else is something that we can understand. And so Jesus is going to use some examples of things that they understood and say the kingdom of God is like this. Now, we do have to recognize the context in which this particular section is taking place. Um, I mentioned back in 4 verses 1 and 2 that he is there by the seashore. This continues that same setting, the same people, the same situation that we looked at last week. Um, <clears throat> here Jesus is calling his listener to hear the message that he presents, even though he knows that some have already rejected him. More are going to continue to reject him. And yet, he is constantly calling out to them, trying to teach them, trying to get them to listen, trying to get them to recognize and accept the message that he is giving. Um, <clears throat> this is one of those crazy awesome things about the way that God operates. Even though the, the religious leaders had rejected him, Jesus didn't throw up his hands and give up and say, oh, I'm done, no more. He continues to teach. And you're going to see throughout the rest of this, that there are times in which they are there listening. Sometimes they're listening just to try and trap him, just to get him in trouble. I, I acknowledge that. But he is constantly continuing to offer um, the message that he is bringing. Generally speaking, even after someone has rejected him, God continues to give them opportunities to turn to, that, to him. There are times in which it's one and done. I'm, I'm not denying that. That is completely up to God. 
But so often he is so merciful that he will share with them over and over and over again and give them opportunity to turn to him. We should be grateful for that. I know if you consider your own life, your own history, how many times did it take for you to be aware of your need for Christ before you accepted him, before you acknowledged him? Maybe there are some that you have been presenting Christ to and you've told them and you've told them and you've told them and they haven't accepted and they've rejected. The mercy of God is amazing. Now it's up to him. I'm not, I'm not saying that everybody gets another chance. I'm not saying that. And yet we recognize that when Jesus is teaching, that happens. And even though so many had rejected him, he continues to teach, he continues to offer, he continues to present. Now like I said, in this section we're going to find two analogies. Um, we're going to start off with a lamp. He says, a lamp is not brought to be put under a peck measure, is it? Or under a bed? Is it not brought to be put on a lampstand? Okay, so then obviously the question is, what is a lamp? What, what is a lamp? It's a source of light. It gives light, right? So what do you do with a lamp? You, you set it out somewhere so that it can be seen, so that it sheds light around so that you can continue to operate, whatever it is. It does not make sense that you would put a lamp under a basket or under the bed because then it's not going to shed light unless maybe you're searching for something under the bed, perhaps, but that's not what he's talking about. Now, it does say um, under a basket. Um, this is not a specific size that's in view. It's simply that he is under something. Some versions are going to say under a peck measure. Some are going to say under a bushel. Um, the, the size of that is not what's in focus. If you're interested, technically the term means 16 sextari, which is a Latin measurement. You're welcome to look that one up. But the, the point is not how big is the basket, but that you don't put it under a basket. That makes no sense. A lamp is lit to be able to shed light. So why is Jesus emphasizing this? Why is he using that example to teach something? What has he been doing over and over and over again? What have I commented on already this morning that Jesus was constantly always doing? He was teaching. He is shining the light. He is letting it be known. He's trying to give the message. And last week we looked at, um, in verses 10 through 12, there's this, this idea in which he is is shading that, it looks like he's not sharing it, he doesn't want people to know, and yet what he is declaring, what he's letting be known is he wants people to know. He wants people to know his message and to understand what he is teaching, but they have blinded their own eyes. They have not um, allowed God's message to, per, uh, to get in, to make sense, to be a part of who they are. And so... Um, it's not that Jesus is trying to shade that or prevent them from understanding. He wants them to know. Nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it should come to light. If any man has ears to hear, let him hear. There were things that had not been revealed up until this point. We already looked at that idea of mystery last week. Who remembers what a mystery is in Scripture? A mystery is simply something that had not yet been revealed that is now being revealed. 
There were things in the Old Testament that they didn't know. They didn't understand. Even with the prophets, they prophesied the coming of Christ. They prophesied that he would be there. They gave tons of details and information so that it could be verified that, yes, this is the Messiah. This is the promised one. But there were also a lot of prophecies and things that they didn't fully understand. They didn't get all of the information. And even for us today, we can look at the the book of Revelation. And I know that there are things going on in the world around us right now that people are pointing at and saying, oh, well, this is that, and this is that, and this is that. There are things that we don't understand, that we don't know. That's okay. God has given us what we need to know, and we need to study his word, and we need to, to learn from it and understand it. He has given us things that we need to know, and he, his goal, his message, his, or his point, was to bring the message and express what he wanted people to know and understand. That is making, uh, making it visible, shedding light on these things so that they will be able to understand. His plan was not to hide this stuff. He wanted people to understand the parables that he was using, the message that he was bringing, the teaching that he had, and yet... So often, people were unwilling to. He came declaring a message of the mystery of the kingdom. The kingdom had been hidden, but Christ is here declaring it. Now, that does raise a question. A question that we didn't really dig into when it was first mentioned back in chapter 1, verse 15. Um, We didn't dig into it a whole lot any of the other times that it's been mentioned. But what is the kingdom? He's teaching about the kingdom. We're going to be looking at some parables that say the kingdom is like such and such. But what is the kingdom? What is that dealing with? Does anybody anybody know? Okay, the kingdom of God. That's that's what it is. Now, is is God in charge? It's the reign of God. Is is God in charge? Is he in, in control? Does he reign? Psalm 103 verse 19 declares that God is in charge, that he reigns. So what's going on here? Well, specifically, it's referring to God's plan to establish his rule on earth. Christ comes offering the kingdom in their day, but the Jews rejected it. And now it is awaiting the future return of Christ. Now there's a lot going on with the kingdom. And I'm, I'm not going to say that I have it all completely figured out and how all the nuances and details work. If you're taking notes... Get ready, because I'm going to give you a bunch of passages and a bunch of verses. And I would encourage you to dig into these. Um, We are awaiting the return of Christ for when he will establish his kingdom on earth. But the Gospel of Matthew has a ton of references. You're going to see it come up a lot, because Matthew is focused on this idea of Jesus as king. So, a few things that we can understand about the kingdom. We're not going to turn to all of these. That's why I said if you're, if you're a note taker, go ahead and get ready to write these down. I'm going to give you what, it, what it's about, and I would encourage you to look, it, look at it, dig into it. In Matthew uh, chapter 3, verse 2, chapter 4, verse 17, and chapter 10, verse 7, all say that the kingdom is near. It's near at hand. Jesus, like I said, came offering the kingdom, trying to get them to recognize it's close. The king himself was present. It was being proclaimed in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. The kingdom was something to be desired in chapter 6, verse 10, as well as chapter 6, verse 33. 
But something that needs to be, we need to be aware of is that the kingdom was very exclusive. Uh, Matthew 7, 21 and 8, 12 both emphasize that, that it is exclusive. However, it is widely available. It was something that was being offered very widely, according to Matthew 8, verse 11. In chapter 12, verse 28 of Matthew, it is recognized as present, as already there. Like I said, the king himself was there. Um, that also comes up in Luke chapter 11, verse 20, and Luke 17, verse 21, the idea of it being present. But, according to Matthew 16, 28, the kingdom is not yet there. So that's where I'm saying there's, there's a lot going on here, and it's kind of confusing and kind of challenging to, to figure out, okay, what exactly is going on? What all is this? Because you're saying it's present, and yet it's not here. It's being offered widely, and yet it's exclusive. What's going on with this kingdom? There's a lot involved in, in this. It is difficult to enter the kingdom of God. That comes from Matthew chapter 18, verse 3. And 19, verses 23 through 24. Now, I know that I'm going through these verses very, very quickly. If you missed them, talk to me afterwards. I've, I've got them listed out here, and I will happily share them with you again. But one more. It was prepared from the foundation of the world. It's Matthew 25, verse 34. And that's just a few of the 55 different references in the book of Matthew that deal with this idea of the kingdom of God. Not to mention the rest of the New Testament. Like I said, Matthew really focuses on it because Matthew is declaring that Jesus is the king. Jesus is a fulfillment of the Old Testament looking towards that kingdom that was promised, that king who would come. And so that's where Matthew emphasizes this and mentions it a lot, whereas the other Gospels, and then you get into the, the rest of the New Testament writers, they don't mention it nearly as much. Let me summarize. Jesus is king. He already is. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. His reign is guaranteed, but the realm is not yet established. So he is in charge. He does reign, but the kingdom has not yet started as a realm so that two key words to keep in mind, reign versus realm. Reign is the fact that he is the king. He is in charge. Realm is what is he in charge of. And this is focusing specifically on the earthly kingdom, what we think towards the uh, millennial reign of Christ. His primary message then deals with this kingdom, but he does not clearly express everything that there is to know about it. There's tons that we don't know or understand. But he has declared what we do need to. He's going to draw a lot of comparisons to tell people to long for, look forward to, and desire the kingdom. And as servants of the king, that is exactly what we should be doing. Now, does that tell us everything that we could possibly want to know about the kingdom of God? No. And I will admit, like I said, I haven't gotten it all figured out. There's tons in there. You start studying, you start reading, you start going through, and there's a lot going on with this idea of the kingdom of God. And it, it can be summarized down, like I said, to the, the reign of Christ, looking forward to a realm that he will have. But there's tons more going on. And so I would encourage you to uh, dig into that 
if that's something that, that is of interest to you and you want to, I've listed off just a handful of the ones in Matthew. Like I said, there's 55 of them. So if it comes up that much, it's something that's important. It's something that's significant. It's something that we do need to dig into. That doesn't necessarily mean that we have all of our, ans- or all of our questions answered about it. But then Jesus says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. He wants to be understood. He wants people to know. Jesus, again, is calling on people to hear the message, to receive it, and to let it bear fruit in their lives. Now, he's going to follow this up with a warning. Take care what you listen to. That's verse 24. Take care what you listen to. By the standard of measure, it shall be measured to you. And more shall be given you beside. For whoever has, to him shall more be given. And whoever does not have, even what he has, shall be taken away from him. It's an interesting play on words to start off with. He has just said, if any man has ears to hear, let him hear. The idea is listening. But then the very next thing that he says is, take care what you listen to. It's a play on words that says, watch what you listen to. Pay attention to it. Watch with your eyes is the, is the play that's happening there. But watch out what you are listening to. And then he goes on to express this idea of by the measure of measuring, by your measure of measuring, you will be measured, is, is how that next phrase is then listed out. And so pay attention. Watch what you hear. Watch what you listen to. Watch what's going in. And the measure that you have is what's going to come into play. If you listen to what he says, he will teach you more. If you don't listen, if you're not paying attention, if you're rejecting his message, he's not going to continue giving the message. He actually says that he will be taking that away as well. And that's that point that I was, was making earlier, that God is so amazing in which he is constantly giving and giving opportunity over and over and over again. And yet there will come a time a point at which he says, all right, that's enough. We don't know when that is. We don't know necessarily when the last opportunity that he's going to give to somebody is. We are called to share the message. Let him deal with it. But in this, in this analogy, in this comparison that he's making, he says, take care what you listen to. By the standard of measure, by your standard of measure, it shall be measured to you, and more shall be given to you besides. He is giving his message, he's giving the word, he's letting them know, he's teaching them, and he wants to continue teaching them. And if they are receptive, then he will continue to pour out more and more and more if they are receptive to it. But if they reject, if they won't, then that will be taken away. We then come to the, the two similes. Oh, hang on. Ultimately, though the religious leaders rejected Christ, God is going to use that rejection to accomplish his plan, namely the crucifixion of Christ. That's what he's, what he's aiming towards, what he's moving in that direction. But he is still calling and giving that opportunity and wanting people to come to him. He wants people to hear and to understand, but if they reject him, God is still going to be able to use that plan or use that rejection in order to accomplish his plan. We saw that back in verse 12, um, well, 10 through 12 last week. Now, we move to two similes. Uh, Like we we mentioned, a simile is simply that use of like for the sake of comparison. Um, It indicates that these things are not exactly the same. 
So that's one of those indicators. Anytime that you see that in Scripture, don't automatically start assuming that it's exactly what's being described. A lot of times there isn't that comparison, and so we do need to dig into it as that's exactly what's being described. But you've got to pay attention, and if it says this is like that, it's not um, exactly the same, but there's a similarity that can be drawn. There, like I said, there are a lot of those in the Psalms. There's a lot of them in prophecy. And there's one here that is only recorded in Mark. It's very rare that Mark has something that's not at least in Matthew or Luke. But this is one of those where it's only recorded here. Um, the first one deals with this idea of a man casting out seed. The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil and goes to bed at night, gets up by day, And the seed sprouts up and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. I said it's only recorded here in Mark. And there's a man who goes out to cast seed. Now, here's one of those, just a heads up, when you're dealing with parables, don't automatically assume that the man going out to cast seed is exactly the same as another man who went out to cast seed. We looked at that last week. Just because a similar thing is happening, don't assume that they are exactly the same. Now, that said, in both of these, the word is the seed. I'm not going to deny that. But be aware that sometimes parables use the same comparison or example to teach different things. In this one, the man casts the seeds and he leaves it until harvest. He doesn't know how it grows. He doesn't understand what's going on and what causes it. He doesn't go back to to build it up. And yet, when the right time comes, he sends in the sickle. That's that's the, the phrase here, is that he sends out his sickle in order to harvest because the harvest has come. And so... With this one, we were left, okay, so what's going on here? Why is Jesus making this comparison? Obviously, the people in that society and that culture understood this idea of casting out seed, planting and preparing for harvest, going out and harvesting it in. They also recognized that they didn't necessarily fully understand how that all functioned. In, in our society, we like to think that science has explained everything, and yet science continues to learn new things, and we continue to learn new things. We don't necessarily understand how all of it comes about, and yet it does. And that's the, that's the point that he's making in this one, is the fact that when God's word goes out, it will produce a result. We don't necessarily know how. We aren't necessarily the ones who cause it to do it. In fact, this farmer who goes out and he spreads the seed, he spreads the word, and it produces that result, he doesn't know how. He doesn't understand it all. And yet, there's something about it that just cannot be overcome. It will produce a harvest. When the time is right, he sends the sickle uh, to be able to bring in that harvest. The message goes out and inevitably produces results. The kingdom is prepared for the right time. It will happen. That's the, the, what he's making here, is the kingdom of God is like this. It will happen. There is nothing that can overcome it. There is nothing that can stop it. But it is waiting for the right time. Now, this one and the next one, there are a lot of things that are going on in this that could very easily, uh, if you were, were trying to do allegories, you could start pulling out that, oh, well, this means that, and this means that, and this means these things. 
And I would caution you, be very careful about that. Um, it's really normal. You start reading books about uh, parables and you're going to find all kinds of things like that. Is it possible that some of the original listeners would have put some of those ideas together? Yes. But we don't know for sure. Our culture is different. Our experiences are different. We, we can't necessarily say that, oh, when he references this, that they immediately knew that, and therefore it means all of these things as you go through. So just be aware and be careful as you're dealing with, um, with parables and understanding them and interpreting them that there are sometimes things that are in there that may or may not have been picked up in a particular way by the original listeners. A good example of that comes up then in the next one, a mustard seed. We start hearing about mustard, and in, in my mind, I'll admit, my first thought is some people like that on hot dogs, but I prefer it in stuffed eggs. That's the extent of mustard that I know. I've not seen a mustard plant. I, I've seen pictures of it. I've done some research and some study. But I'm not familiar with mustard the way that they were familiar with mustard. I've used it in cooking, but um, beyond that, mustard is not something that is ingrained in me. Yet, as you go through the parables and as you look at the different things that are going on when Jesus teaches about mustard seeds, there's a lot that he says. There are a lot of references. And so the original listener... And the original reader would have had certain things in their mind about a mustard seed. Some of the, the research that I did, um, trying to, to learn about mustard a little bit, um, we find out that it is a tiny little seed that is part of an invasive plant. That once that plant is established, it's very difficult to get rid of. Um, it's sometimes referred to as a tree. It's actually a bush, technically, but it grows up like a tree and becomes very massive and very big, even to the point that birds can land in it, roost, nest, find their shelter in it. Um, it is a, a tiny little seed that grows a huge, massive plant. And that's really part of what he's uh, emphasizing in this. Um, starting off in verse 30, and he said, or he, he continued saying, he was saying, how shall we picture the kingdom of God? Or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed, which, when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet, when it is sown, grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches, so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. Now, this is a parable that sometimes will get people arguing, because, technically speaking, the mustard seed is not the smallest seed in existence. And so there are some people who are like, oh, look, look, there's an error, there's a problem. It's not. What is he doing? He's teaching. How is he teaching? He's using parables. He is using uh, figures of speech and creative language in order to make the point. Um, yes, this is a tiny little seed. We would often use figurative language to express things of that nature. The, the tiniest little thing, well, technically, you're not talking about an atom or whatever it is that's smaller than an atom. Scientists have, have talked about there's something even smaller than that. I don't know what it is. Neutrons and protons, thank you. And electrons. And, okay, apparently my kids are, are very smart scientifically. There, there's all kinds of little bitty things that, you know, if you're wanting to get technical, you could get into. The point is... Do what? 
Well, the, the point is that Jesus is using figurative language to express the contrast between the tiniest little seed and the massive great big result. The, the change from the itty little thing all the way up to this massive tree, so big that birds can nest in it and find shelter in it. Um, he's not making a, a technical statement, and so it, it's not a contradiction, and it's not something that we need to get hung up on. He's using figurative language, and that comes up quite a bit. We're able to understand that. We use the same thing. <clears throat> so, uh, like I said, this is a plant that is um, used for a lot of different things. It is used for a lot of examples in Scripture, and it is a bush that grows up. Now, we're not told that some of these other ideas that could be in it, um, this idea that it is invasive, is Jesus making the point that the, the kingdom of God will spread and there's no stopping it, that it, it's going to invade everything? I, I doubt it, but I don't know. Um, is it possible that the birds mean something? Uh, a, lot of, a lot of things, if you start digging into this and you start reading, you're going to find out that, that there are people who say, well, the birds must represent something, people of some kind. The fact that the kingdom grows up and, and birds are able to nest in it makes sense that, okay, this is representative of something finding shelter in that kingdom, whether it's the Jews or the Gentiles or what. But all of those are extra possibilities that could be in there. I'm not fully convinced of the allegories that, that can be pointed to. So what is the specific thing that Jesus is emphasizing in this? The simplest point, the main thing that he's focused on, is the fact that the kingdom of God will start off small and become massive. Are there other things that he could be acknowledging within that? Definitely. Again, be careful reading too much into it when we don't have the same background, the same understanding, the same experience that the original listener and the original reader would have understood on that. The simplest point, like I said, is that the kingdom of God is going to start very, very small and it's going to have a massive result in which there are uh, people will come to and be able to uh, take shelter in. Verse 33. And with many such parables, he was speaking the word to them as they were able to hear it. I said it before, it continues to come up. Jesus is teaching a lot of things in a lot of ways, using a lot of examples and a lot of comparisons and a lot of parables to be able to make those points. In case the reader hasn't yet caught it, Mark wants people to understand that Jesus did this continually and that these aren't the only parables. Um, there, there are at least 30 of them that have been recorded, and most likely there were even more than that. He was teaching the crowds. Some of them were receptive, and some of them were not. He knew that there would be people who would not accept him, who would reject the message and ignore what he had to say. And yet he was proclaiming to them as well. He was continually, continuing to teach to them as well. But... He specifically goes and explains these things privately to his own disciples. He wanted them to understand. He wanted them to learn. He wanted them to grow and develop and become who God wanted them to be. I'll admit, there's a part of me that when I read verse 34, he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. I wish I could have been there. I wish I could have heard that. 
and know and understand and get it all. But that's one of those things that he didn't necessarily want fully recorded. God gave us his word. He gave us what he wanted us to have. He gave us what is sufficient and necessary. Over and over again, Mark is showing Christ teaching in a unique way, in a special way, so that the people would understand. Jesus came to proclaim a message, and he was going about saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. The time is right. Repent. Turn to him. And then he gave people an option. Are they going to accept that or reject that? That's really what it ultimately did come down to. So many of the religious leaders rejected him. But the awesome thing about God, even though they rejected the message, they didn't want to hear it, they rejected the messenger, they got to the point that they wanted to kill him, God was the one who was in control. Jesus does reign. He is in charge. God was in control, and he used that because his, his plan, his goal, he knew that he came to die, to pay the penalty as the sacrifice for the world. God was even able to use that, their rejection and their insistence on not listening to him to accomplish the goals that he had. That's what's going on back there in, in 10 through 12. Even though Jesus was declaring these things, even though he wanted people to understand and intended for them to learn and follow him, he was still even able to use their rejection to accomplish his goal. Because those same religious leaders that we saw ignore him and reject him and decide that they wanted to kill him, they're going to eventually do just that. They're going to kill him, but only in the right time that God had planned. Then they will accomplish that. So what? You guys know I always like to, to bring it down to a so what for us. Over and over and over again, Mark has presented Christ as unique, as special, as teaching, as proclaiming. He has a message to be heard. Are we going to accept that message? Are we going to listen? Or are we going to be like those religious leaders who had the chance, who had it laid out right in front of them, and said, you know what? I don't care. I want my way. I want what I've always been doing. I want, whether it's the power, the authority, the, the money, the finance, whatever it was. Are we going to allow those other things, like the religious leaders, or are we going to be like his disciples who submit, who accept, and say, you know what? I want this message. I want to understand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you that you do Declare to us the truth. Thank you that we have the Bible today. That's something that throughout history was not so easily prevalent, easily accessible. So Lord, thank you for it. But Lord, help us to read it. Help us to study it. Help us to be willing to take the time and put forth the effort to learn and understand. And Lord, Lord, help us to accept that message. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's things we don't want to hear. Sometimes we may not like it. And yet, it comes from you. And you are the king. You are the one in authority. So Lord, help us to submit to you, to accept your message, to live out how you desire us to live. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.